Hello and welcome to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat, and the main man in Sass, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. Twitter, Snapchat, it's fine, but nothing replaces a mojito in real life, and we'd love to have one slash ten with you at Sasta Annual 2017. So to join me and Jason with many mojitos, simply enter the promo code Drinks with Harry. those three words, Drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets, and not only will you get a whopping 20% off the ticket price, but also a happy hour of free mojitos. I know which element of that deal is more attractive. However, to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Daniel Sachs. Now, Daniel is the co-CEO and co-founder of AppDirect, which he founded in 2009. And AppDirect is the leading commerce platform for selling cloud services. And at the firm, Daniel plays a key role in the growth development of AppDirect, from attracting a leading team to nurturing relationships with customers and partners. And AppDirect has backing from some of the leading investors in the world, including the likes of Foundry Group, JP Morgan, and many more incredible investors. And prior to AppDirect, Daniel worked at Viant Capital, a boutique investment bank. However, it's now time for me to shut up and to hand over to the one and only Daniel Sachs, co-founder and co-CEO at AppDirect. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Daniel, so great to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. A huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you, Daniel, for joining me today. Definitely happy to be here. Look forward to speaking with you. Now, I'd love to get started today with a quick two to three minute founding story of AppDirect and how the business really got off the ground in the early days. Excellent. So we founded AppDirect in the summer of 2009. And if you recall, it was the height of the Great Recession. Businesses around the world were struggling to stay productive and collaborative. And in fact, uh, my family had a furniture store on Main Street in Niagara Falls, Canada. And it was around for 100 years, started by my great-grandfather. And we had to close it just at the time of the recession because we were unable to stay productive and compete with larger businesses that had better access to capital and technology. And at the same time, um, my co-founder and I I had uh, just been in San Francisco. He was working at Bain & Company and consulting to larger companies on cloud. I, I uh, was interning at a small investment bank here um, and learning some of the early startups in the cloud, whether that be uh, Box or DocuSign or others. And we recognized that there was the ability to think about how we could connect great cloud tools with businesses around the world. And we said that if we could create a global network or exchange where businesses could easily find the applications they need that would enable them to be productive, that businesses like my family's could have competed and stayed in business and been more effective. And, and how did it really get off the ground then in the early days for you? Um, it took a long time. So a lot of companies, there's this aha moment that leads them to start a company. And then you see in the movies, there's this huge viral tick up and they have a million users from day one. Um, <laughs> our approach uh, was was similar. It was, it was actually fairly different and, and very challenging. So the, for the first two years, it was primarily uh, me and my co-founder. And we were really focused on um, addressing this big challenge, uh, which was how do we figure out the way businesses really buy software? And one of the things that I realized from meeting with hundreds and thousands of small businesses is that businesses don't just go online and uh, subscribe to software without talking to anyone and just figure it out. They typically have someone local that they really trust as their value-added reseller for software and hardware. And what we realized is if we really wanted to impact businesses around the world in enabling them to have find, buy, and use software, what would be critical is for us to kind of build out a channel of local providers that are equipped to be able to sell and service cloud. And that was our approach for 
from day one. Um, and what really got us going was really finding a first customer that would help us address the chicken and the egg problem of being able to have an exchange or a store that had all the best cloud software um, and at the same time had people that were able to sell it. But before we dive into stay, and you mentioned that the different stages, uh, we're going to discuss the SaaS life cycle today. Uh, in other words, the different tactics SaaS companies employ at different stages of development. But before we dive into that, I think it's quite important really just to assess the market as a whole, where we are now and the transformation that we've seen. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the world of SaaS has changed and shifted from, say, the old world of on-premise to today and where we are now. So I think you used a key word, and that's transformation. I can bucket transformation into two types. One is evolutionary, and the other is revolutionary. So take music, for example. You have records, and then to cassettes, and then to CDs. And in that evolutionary change, there was incremental benefit at each step. Music could be heard in higher quality. You could fit more on each record. But essentially, the mechanisms for production and distribution remain the same. So ultimately, someone who was buying music would go into a music store and they would buy music off the shelf. And someone who was producing it would have to go to a label, rent out record space, and then produce it in, in, a, in a label that would then get uh, manufactured onto a CD. However, what was revolutionary in the transformation of music was the shift to digital, whether that be iTunes or Spotify, where all of a sudden the mechanisms for distribution and productive production completely shifted. So when we look at um, the change is there. People could produce music in the confines of their own home, which really liberalized the ability for musicians to start from anywhere. And then the distribution mechanisms fundamentally changed uh, because people could buy music in an on-demand or in a subscription way. And all of a sudden, you weren't limited to the confines of a CD or buying in a store. And I think similarly, where we are as a software industry is cloud-enabled revolutionary transformation to software uh, for software in that we have new production and distribution mechanisms that didn't exist in the past. So in the past, if you wanted to produce software, you needed to write one-time instances. So let's say Windows 95, you needed to um, really then create and ship it around the world into stores and resellers that could then um, implement that for businesses around the world. And therefore, the long tail couldn't emerge because the cost to be able to develop and ship was so high. Now with the shift to uh, digital, which we really see as a revolutionary transformation, all of a sudden the cost of producing software is lower. So all of a sudden you have more cloud services that can fit businesses around the world, depending on their specific focus around vertical and geography. Um, and with tools like um, cloud services like Amazon or uh, Google or, or Azure, um, it's much easier and cheaper to be able to produce uh, SaaS. And then on the flip side, on the distribution side, we're seeing huge disruption in the way things are distributed. Because instead of you needing to buy software off the shelf on limited shelf space, or instead of you needing to, let's say, have a systems integrator like Accenture um, or IBM implement, um, now you can benefit from really on-demand channels. Um, so really thinking about new ways um, of producing and distributing SaaS, and we really see that as revolutionary. How do you think that revolutionary change then has affected how much actually goes through the channel then? Um, so I think what's interesting is when you look at a shift to digital, what everyone 
believed is that in the digital world, you may not need the channel because businesses can just go to a website and find the relevant tools that they need by, via searching Google. Um, but that was actually the one contrarian thesis that we had on the cloud. You know, From my uh, view into my family's small business or from all the research that we did in the early days, what we realized is businesses fundamentally want to buy software from humans. With the number of services businesses need, they may want to have 10, 20, 30 services, but they want to buy them all from one person with a unified bill, centralized support, and consistent uh, user management across all applications. Um, so really, our focus point was to say, how can we enable these human channels to be able to be equipped to sell cloud? And that was one of the big shifts uh, that we helped in the industry, which was really thinking about how the channel would play out in the cloud market. And I'm super intrigued there by your saying about buying from humans, because a huge element that we've seen rise in the past probably five years is the rise, probably less than that actually, but of customer success. I'm really intrigued if we touch on that then, in, in how that thesis of buying from humans and how pivotal that is, how that plays out in your customer success development at AppDirect. Does it take a pivotal role then in your management of the company? Definitely. I think it manifests in two ways. So the first is in the buying behavior of the way people buy software. The second is in the usage behavior in the way people use software. And that's really where customer success comes in. So on the first piece, what we found is that when businesses want to buy software, yes, they might search Google and do some of their own research. And it's really helpful to have um, inbound lead strategies where they can look at podcasts and webinars and different mechanisms. But ultimately, when it comes to making a major purchase decision, and oftentimes for a business, software is one of the biggest purchase decisions they have, they want to look to either someone who is an expert in that software service. So that could be a salesperson, um, or it could be someone who's an expert in that industry. So it could be a value-added reseller that's specializing in the uh, manufacturing vertical or in the, the retail vertical. And the human element to support that sale is very critical. And it's not just about talking to someone, but it's really taking a consultative approach and making sure that they have uh, deep ways of interacting to assess and understand the software lifecycle. So where people may have initially assumed that people could come on board and buy software, the reality is the human element really matters. And I think that one way to you know, approach that is uh, looking at uh, you know, the way that people typically adopt software. And when we see early adopters, um, there's a subset of people maybe in San Francisco or in uh, urban markets that are in media or technology that are willing to go online, experiment, try things, not want to talk to people. And we found that a lot of SaaS companies can get to their first 100,000 million users in that mechanism. Um, so initially, when a, a SaaS company is starting, it's actually pretty easy to uh, get to, let's say, a seed stage or series A without needing salespeople or a distribution channels. Um, but where that falls short is reaching the masses. And that's what we've really realized is that it's critical to be able to think about ways to, to sell to you know, hundreds of millions of users, not the first uh, 100,000 or million. Uh, same thing falls in on the customer success side. So once you've adopted a SaaS service, what we found is if you just did it by experimenting online, the drop-off rates in activation and usage can be massive. So what we see is if, let's say, you just experimented by signing up to a, a software service online, you may see typical churn or drop-off rates of 90%. Whereas if you're effectively sold to and committed and you understand the value of the tool up front, that can actually be inverse, where you have an 80 to 90% likelihood of being 
being retained and uh, your likelihood of getting the right expectation out of that software service is much higher. And that really makes the role of customer success uh, a lot more effective because the role of customer success then is retaining uh, the user and continuing to show value and cross-selling upsell with new insights. Whereas if the purpose of customer success is to come in after someone has confusion of why they've signed up to a service um, or the value they're getting, it's really an uphill battle. So I'd say um, you know the biggest lesson that, that I see for businesses when they're looking at customer success is think about your sales rep as the first opportunity to drive success, to set expectations up front. Um, and it's very important uh, that you don't just fo- focus on initial user signups, but really focus on the value that your initial cohort of users are getting and to make sure that that value really aligns with their expectations. And you mentioned that being sold to and the sales rep is kind of the first opportunity and first point of contact. Uh, you've said before that many of today's software vendors are leaning on direct sales. I guess then it's more a question for me, like, is that their fault? And is this a fundamental problem? I don't think it's their fault at all. And I think it's an evolution. Um, so when we look at you know, the revolutionary transformation of bringing people onto the cloud. One of the benefits is that businesses could have lower cost of production as well as lower cost of distribution. And what's the cheapest cost of distribution? It's putting your website up, maybe putting a little viral video like Dropbox had in 2007 that said, you know, here's my magic pocket where I can no longer need a USB and all my storage is there. And that viral video sending a million users to their website and therefore the cost to acquire that initial million users was practically zero. I mean, that was unprecedented in history. And in order to acquire a million users in the past, it may have cost millions or tens of millions of dollars in funds in order to do that. So I think uh, there's nothing wrong at all with the SaaS companies that are able to acquire users in a cost-effective way initially. In fact, we think that's great because that cultivates so much initial validation and product market fit in new ideas. And that's ultimately driving a funding environment around new services being started. Um, So we fundamentally think that's amazing. And we think the natural propensity to start with direct sales is an awesome trend because it just makes it so much easier for businesses to get off the ground, really selling software along initial vertical uh, or geography. However, what we're finding is for businesses to keep scale and keep pace with the expectations that are set, particularly when they're VC funded, it's critical for them to think about how they can scale to additional sales channels beyond just that initial inbound user acquisition channel that's typically very cheap to acquire a customer. Um, And we kind of can look at that in context to, let's say, how companies are getting funded. Um, So if you're a SaaS company and in order to get seed funding, it's pretty easy to be able to say, okay, I'm going to have this viral video. I'm going to have initial product market fit. I'll have 10 customers that like my idea. And then you get a seed round. Then if you can prove that those customers will pay, it's easy to get an A round. Then if you can scale that a little bit more, you can get a B round. But if you really want to continue that 100% plus growth rate into your C and E, and then want to show continued growth beyond that, you need to explore more mechanisms to scale beyond your initial user set and therefore direct sales. So hiring a sales force as well as channel sales, you know, deploying more mechanisms for growth, whether that be affiliate marketing or instituting a VAR network uh, are really critical for you to in- enable your continued growth. What do you think that takes then to enable the continued growth through, as you said, that kind of affiliates, resellers? Is it, you know, sheer funding? Is it uh, increasing the team's um, experience? 
experience with kind of uh, brilliant sales hires from Salesforce. What what do you think it takes to kind of implement this strategic growth effectively? I think what it really takes is an awareness of the life cycle of how businesses buy. So when we think about crossing the chasm in the theory around how you uh, address certain stages of uh, businesses, I think that a lot of people in Silicon Valley and in technology are aware of how to address an initial early adopter cohort. Um, but I think in order to continue to scale and be a durable business, it's not about the funding and it's not about the cost to get there. It's about an awareness that what is going to get you from zero to one um, isn't necessarily what's going to get you to the next level. And you need to be aware and learn the lessons of other companies to know uh, how to continuously invest in the right uh, distribution strategies to continue that scale. So I think that you can't just make the assumption that if you're attracting an initial user base by an online channel where your cost of acquisition is, let's say, a dollar per user, um, that may not scale. So you need to recognize in advance that the cheapest way to acquire users may occur initially, not necessarily at scale. And I think the hardest hump is actually going beyond that early adopter section to the early majority, because at that point, you're not yet doing mass marketing to the to, to where you get benefits of scale, but you're still trying to attract people who are not early adopters, but are majority. So I think that's really where the trick comes in, is being aware of the next steps in order to continue your growth. Absolutely. And in terms of kind of continuing the growth and and tricks and challenges that can come along the way. Often, uh, one of the biggest problems is just monetizing the software itself. I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts then on on kind of how much in a role iteration plays in terms of finding the right model for you. And then I, I've heard you have a strategic playbook in terms of the SaaS playbook for you. So so I'd love to hear more about that from your perspective. Definitely. So so n- number one, I think that overall it's very critical to iterate. And I think the one theme that I've seen across all businesses is experimentation is critical because there's definitely a shift in the way uh, things evolve. So if there's anything I can say above all, businesses need to be willing to experiment uh, and the strategies that initially work may not work in the future. So it's very critical to uh, adopt a change, to uh, be iterative and to uh, experiment with new things. That being said, what we have learned at AppDirect from studying thousands of SaaS companies and their growth is there is somewhat of an evolution in a playbook. And if you're aware of what that playbook is in advance, you can think about how to best set your company up to succeed at the next stage of growth. The way we really look at that playbook is uh, by assessing the different distribution strategies that these thousands of businesses have taken over time in their life cycle. And what we found is that you can't try all strategies at once you need to phase them out over time. We kind of have a four-step playbook to uh, expanding your distribution. The first is essentially uh, the direct model, which we've highlighted, which many businesses can start to find product market fit. That's really to go directly to uh, your website or attract people directly where your cost of acquisition is low um, and uh, and get people directly on your site. After that, uh, what's really critical is you need to start experimenting with other ways to get them hooked. And that's typically where the channel comes in. So in the channel, we kind of break down the, these uh, four key phases. The first is affiliate marketing and referral programs. So how do you drive more traffic 
to your site and how do you drive more leads to your sales reps? And one ways to do that is to uh, establish a network of a referral engine of people who are going to send leads to your site and pay them per lead. Um, that could be essentially uh, looking at uh, influencers in the space um, and having those influencers refer traffic to you. It could be looking at other marketing sites or blogs that might be able to find a way to uh, be influential. Um, and that is, is a really critical way to continue to drive uh, growth to your site. The next, number two, is reseller programs. That's really taking it a step further where you're training someone else to sell your program. So in uh, a referral model, people are referring a lead to your sales reps or to your um, you know engine, whereas in a resell model, model, you're actually training someone else to take the life cycle of sales um, and sell on your behalf. And that's really where you can benefit from the millions of value-added resellers that exist out there and people that know businesses specifically in local geographies and verticals that may have a trusted relationship that was built over decades, and you can tap into those relationships. Um, Then the next is really listing in application marketplaces. So one of the benefits of the digital revolution is that now there are more mechanisms for people to find your applications, and that's really online marketplaces. So that could be for the mobile app world, looking and listing in iTunes or Android. For uh, others, it could be listing in app marketplaces, including that of a service provider like an AT&T or British Telecom. Um, it could be listing in app marketplaces of other SaaS companies um, like Sugar CRM or Salesforce. Um, so that's really another model. Um, and then really the, the fourth model is leveraging your own sales team with full end-to-end commerce. So in, ensuring that across the board, um, your sales team is equipped to fully sell your services as well as third-party services to actually act as that trusted provider to your customer base. Um, So one of the things that we've seen is that as you build a relationship with your customers, you've earned the right to not only sell them your own service, but really sell them um, a value prop around uh, what you're offering. So if you're, let's let's say, um, selling a, a cloud service to the retail vertical, you can then bundle value proposition of third-party services and products um, that give you the right to sell more and more to the customer base. So along that evolution, you're really deepening Uh, your trust with the customer um, and strengthening your value proposition across the board. But I would love to dive into a 60-second SaaS now. So it's a quick fire. I say a statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Sounds great. Excited. So let's start with your biggest mentor to you and how the relationship came about. Got it. So when uh, we were starting the company, there was a, a friend of ours that we got introduced to, and his name is Eric Boyko. He was the founder of Stingray Digital. And while you may not have heard of the company, most people, there's there's uh, literally uh, hundreds of millions of homes subscribed to his services. And what he essentially did is took uh, music and put it onto TVs. R- really, uh, what's uh, encouraging about him is he taught us a few different values. Um, one was PMA, which is positive mental attitude. The other was go, 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 which was the intent of just pushing forward and moving. And then, then then the other was just the importance of your first customer. So he used to say to us for years, first customer, first customer, first customer, first customer, and had us focus just on really finding that fit. Uh, and then what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started the journey with AppDirect? I think that when uh, when we just talked about that iterative playbook on selling services, I think knowing 
uh, what to anticipate across the growth life cycle is really important. And when we look at when we started, we had to learn the hard way by having to build a sales force and having to think about new distribution channels and having to uh, learn in that market. And I think now um, that playbook and the lessons learned from the thousands of companies that have uh, started in the SaaS space are out there. So I would say just really learning from others on the evolution of how you have to build your sales team and how you have to build your distribution strategies um, are a huge trick. When is the right time to hire customer success? We spoke earlier. Is it pre-first sales rep? I think you need to think of your sales reps as customer success. Uh, That's the most critical thing. So if you're uh, hiring a first sales rep, their mandate should be make the customer happy from day one and make sure that that you're retaining customers and driving loyalty. And I'd say that customer success uh, and sales should be fused and hired as your first uh, business hire. And then the biggest challenge in the app direct journey for you, and how did you overcome it? I'd say our first challenge was that we thought that we would launch on day one and just have a million users come to our website. And we had to learn the hard way that in our first launch, uh, we pressed the launch button and nothing happened, crickets. And we had to go out and physically meet customers, understand why, build our customer base, interact with channels. Um, and ultimately, now we have reached to 30 million businesses around the world. Um, and I'd say that the way we overcame that was really having conviction in the, in the vision, experimenting and iterating on different distribution channels uh, to make sure that we could get uh, new users uh, engaging and then uh, really understanding how to make them happy and successful. The sound of crickets is always a tough one. Uh, I had it. I had it with my first ever podcast. It's not a nice feeling. Uh, but then <laughs> but I it wa- builds from there, right? The the law of uh, compound interest, I think, is one of the most beautiful things. And um, I, I think that you know things start in laws of small numbers, but then they grow and they compound like a snowball. And we, you know, we'd say you can't get from zero to thirty million in one day, but you can get from zero to ten. And and then 10 to 100, and 100 to 1,000, and 1,000 to a million, and a million to 100 million. And, and that's really the way to look at it. That's how I do it. Strategic milestones kind of breaking up the, the journey. Otherwise, it's too insurmountable. But I do want to, moving out of the quick fire, now you, you've completed that excellently well. Uh, I, I do want to discuss, and this is quite unfair of me, a seriously meta question. Uh, I've heard you say before that the promise of SaaS is yet to be fully realized. I'd love to hear what you mean by this very pensive statement. And, and And what then fully realized looks like to you? I think we're really just at the beginning of understanding what SaaS and cloud uh, is and what the impact it's going to have on the world. And I think initially when people think about software, um, you used to think about about it as a box on a shelf. So let's say you were buying Norton Security. You would buy that CD, um, you would use it, and you'd install it and get output. Or let's say you were buying an accounting service like QuickBooks. You'd install it on your uh, drive, and it would be a little square app that you'd click on, and you go into that app and you put data in and then you get data out. And ultimately, when you think about it, it's pretty dumb in that the value you're going to get out of it is whatever you put in. So manual entry in, manual entry back. Now, I think if you think about the future of software and the infrastructure that we're building, now when you look at a cloud tool, you still think of a cloud tool as an accounting service online that you're subscribing to. And sure, it's better because you can access it online and you know it's stored everywhere. Uh, but essentially, you're still putting data in and getting numbers out. Now, I think if you look at the next 10 years, there's two trends that I think impact cloud that uh, are really going to change change the model completely. The first 
first is big data. Um, so the ability to crunch tons of data across these sources. So if you're an accounting service that, let's say, built an accounting app, uh, really the value you have is not only um, building the software for one service, but anonymizing that data and making meaning of that for the millions of customers that you have. Um, so in the future, you're not just putting information in about your business and getting information back out. Um, you're actually getting insights as to how you can make certain decisions to drive revenue, um, how businesses like you save costs. Um, and that's really game-changing. And then if you compound that by connected devices and the internet of things, you're not just limited to software online. You're getting thousands of data endpoints in real time. Um, so for example, if let's say you're in the delivery business, cars are no longer just uh, manufactured automobiles. Um, they're connected devices that are sending tons of data in real time through telematics that can give you more insights as to um, managing fleet management, management, managing uh, distribution logistics maps that can enable your business to be more productive. And really all of that that connects and hinges on where your data is being stored, which is essentially the cloud. So again, the combination of big data, cloud, and IoT is really going to shift the way uh, businesses get value out of their software, and it's going to essentially open up and really explode uh, the opportunity for businesses to think about software in new ways. So it's no longer a box that you open in the shelf and you put data in and you get data out. It's ultimately a living and organic module that's going to be there with you to intelligence recommend things that you do to make your business transformational. And I think that's where really the revolutionary benefit of cloud is going to come. Well, I cannot wait to see the revolutionary benefit of cloud. And I have no doubt that AppDirect will be one of the leaders in the forefront. Uh, but Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Seriously, Jason told me it'd be a special episode uh, and you more than lived up to expectations. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Harry. This was really, really fun. And a huge hand to Daniel for giving up the time today to come on the show, and so fantastic to hear his journey with AppDirect. Now, do not forget, we would love to see you at Sasta Annual 2017, and to join me and Jason with many mojitos, simply enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, when you purchase your tickets, and not only will you get a whopping 20% off the ticket price, but also the happy hour of free mojitos, thanks to the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lampkin. As always, we so appreciate all the support. You can always email me, harry, at the 20 minute V and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode with David Thompson, CMO at Domo.